this is the beginning of rolling back the disastrous civil rights industrial complex and the absolute stranglehold that uh, civil rights government rights industrial had over our lives uh, giving rise to litigation giving rise to decreased social trust decreased freedom uh, reduced rights to private property and freedom of association creating the, the disuniting of the United States of America. And with that, you know, if you're people feeling particularly patriotic about the United States, uh, if you're people particularly interested in helping out their fellow citizens, creating people who are just much more distrustful and rolling back affirmative action in university admissions is a good beginning step to rolling back the civil rights industrial complex. So hundreds of thousands of people have been hurt. All right. So people who are, who are admitted above and beyond their ability, right, they would only get angry and create trouble and destroy the learning opportunities for others. Then all sorts of people who could have been wonderful doctors, who could have moved ahead, right, they got throttled by affirmative action. So civil rights legislation has effectively meant the transfer of trillions of dollars from hardworking, productive citizens to Less hardworking, less productive, usually maladaptive and antisocial people. So Obamacare, similarly, transfer of $2 trillion over 10 years from productive citizens to less productive citizens. Now, some people have gotten on the civil rights you know, gravy train. And as I was walking this evening, I saw these women you know, playing with their pets. And for, for many women, they're able to use civil rights legislation to essentially you know, treat men and treat other people like pets because they have so much power in the workplace now. They just have to say that someone, you know, a guy is looking at them wrong and they can ruin a guy's career. They can ruin a guy's life. Workplaces have been remade thanks to civil rights legislation, particularly over the past 30 years, so that uh, typical masculine behavior is now completely out of bounds. So female norms now not only rule our school system, all right, so female students much more likely to color between the lines, much more likely to be conformist, much more likely to fit in with what the teacher wants. The teachers will invariably tell you that their female students get the best grades, but their brightest, smartest students are still men. Men are less likely to color between the lines. Men are more adventurous. Men are more rambunctious. But you won't find much in our educational system that is geared towards men. You won't find, for example, classes in military strategy. Right, that's not something that's offered in elementary, middle, or high school very often. You know, class subjects that would appeal to to boys. All right, you don't get that a lot in the educational system. It's overwhelmingly run by women, and they they tend to try to put a wet blanket on competition. They try to put a wet blanket on normal male rambunctiousness, and it had a very negative effect on me and a lot of other men I know. Now, I'm not saying it was the primary reason I did poorly in school, but. Once I applied myself to a class, I had many, many teachers uh, say that, you know, I was about the best or the best student they'd ever had. But most of the time, education was just such a sore destruction experience for me. I'm in the workplace. Not all the time. I've had, you know, wonderful opportunities in workplaces, got not long great with, you know, women in the workplace. But also a lot of the time it's just been so dominated by feminist norms that it's just completely soul crushing. And so I see these women playing with their pets, and I, I just think about those women who use civil rights legislation to try to essentially emasculate men and just treat them, treat them as pets. So women, for example, they can dress in the most provocative way possible in the workplace, 
And if a man comments on it, he's the bad guy. He's the one who gets into trouble. So she can show a tit. She can accentuate her ass, right? She can, you know, call attention to her body in all sorts of ways through how she dresses. But if a man comments on that, he's the bad guy. He's the one who gets into trouble. So maybe, just maybe, this latest Supreme Court ruling is, you know, the beginning of a corrective to the disaster that has been civil rights legislation. All right, this is uh, Dennis Prager from today. Demographic differences in Americans' national pride driven by partisanship. This is interesting. Party identification remains the greatest demographic differentiator in expression of national pride. Republicans have consistently more likely, have been consistently more likely than Democrats and independents to express pride in being American throughout the trend. That gap has been particularly pronounced since 2018, with more than twice as many Republicans as Democrats saying they are extremely proud. How could a Democrat be proud? Their president, in his inaugural address, spent much of the inaugural address speaking about how a great chunk of this country is evil. A first, I have to believe, a first in American inaugural speech history. It's amazing any Democrats feel pride in being American. Nearly twice as many Republicans as Democrats saying they are extremely proud. Republicans are also nearly twice as likely as independents to express the highest degree of pride. And that, that is clear. It would be interesting. I wonder if they do it via sex. That, that would be an interesting thing to look at. Listen to this. This is very uh, significant. We have a graph here. Age group, 18 to 34, 36 to 54, 55 and older. And they do it based on Republican, Independent, and Democratic identification. Republicans, Independents, Democrats. So 55 and older Democrats, 38% say they're extremely proud. Guess what the percentage of 18 to 34-year-olds who are Democrats who say they are extremely proud? <coughs> 12. So give or take the margin. Right, so Democrats, as we've discussed on the show for eight years, Democrats are the party of the coalition of the fringes, all right? So the core of America consists of white Christians, and then Democrats are the coalition of the fringes who are normally angry at the core and normally, you know, carry a massive chip on their shoulder uh, against America. And they're... to diversify their campuses. Thursday's 6-3 decision will force a reworking of admissions criteria throughout American higher education, where for decades the pursuit of diversity has been an article of faith. The ruling's ramifications will likely extend beyond universities to recast the role of racial preferences in America. Leaders of American business and public institutions warned in friend-of-the-court briefs that a ruling against affirmative action would deprive the nation of leaders who reflect the population's racial diversity. Oh, I want to see that. There's a link to that. Yeah, so maybe we will tilt a little bit more towards merit, which will be you know more rewarding of, of men and male achievement and male effort. And maybe we'll open up more space for male-only gatherings in this society. So this is something that David Halberstam, the journalist and author and New York Times war correspondent during the Vietnam War, something he said in 1972 explaining the high-quality work he and his fellow journalists had done in Vietnam because there had been no women in their lives to mess things up. Men alone, right, men with blokes, right, frequently produce excellence that is much more difficult to attain when they have to include women. Because only one of us was married, he wrote of his colleagues. There was no wifely pull to become part of the 
Saigon social world to get along with the Noltings or the Harkinses, the kind of insidious pressure which works against journalistic excellence in Washington. Well, this is true throughout education and, and the workforce, right? Women, naturally, for, for reasons of evolution and for bringing up kids, they're highly attuned to what other people think of them. They're highly conformist. Men are much more willing to buck the tide. So men tend to produce much more excellence, all right? Almost all the great books, almost all the great technological, philosophical, uh, scientific breakthroughs have been done by men because men are much less likely to go along with the herd instinct. And men, when they can just be with men, all right, they frequently produce excellence that would be much more difficult to attain if they, they had wives and women along constantly pulling on them to become you know, much more socially acceptable by toning things down. I have a lot to say about that. The need for people to look like you in leadership positions. Wow. I grew up as an Orthodox Jew. I'm still a religious Jew. It's just not denominationally identifiable. And I remember as a kid that all the, all the figures that were in the, the school books, you know, like C, Spot, Run, what was it? Uh, Jill, Jack and Jill, was it? Were those the th two characters? And, and their dog Spot. And I remember thinking, you know, not one of them uh, wears a yarmulke. <laughs> and so they didn't look like any Orthodox Jew, and that's the world in which I grew up. And you know what? I didn't give a damn. What difference did it make? Why is it important uh, to have someone in a position of power or fame look like you? No, I'm serious. Why is that important? Does it affirm your importance? Is your, is your self-image that weak? And I'm not saying this is... Yeah, for very weak people, it's uh, really important to them that, uh, that they have leaders and mentors who, who look like them. Christopher Cordwell just wrote a fantastic book, The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 1960s. And uh, he talks about how civil rights legislation passed in 1964-65, it made legal equality a fact of American life. But legal equality was then deemed insufficient by both civil rights leaders and the United States government. Right, So once... The ostensible demands had been met. The civil rights movement did not disband. It grew. It grew in money and power and influence. It turned into a lobby. Right? It turned into a political block trying to remedy the basic problems of life. That They felt, oh, they had inferior jobs, lack of money, lack of housing. Right? Uh, nothing about you know, the bad behavior on the part of those who lack jobs, lack money, lack housing. So I was looking at the New York Times. Shocking. You're going to be absolutely shocked here, guys. Schools bring police back to campuses. They reverse racial justice decisions, right? Critics say the move will disproportionately hurt students of color. Well, to the extent that the move disproportionately hurts students of color, it disproportionately hurts those students of color who act like criminals, right? Most students of color do not act like criminals, but for those students of color and students of non-color who act like criminals, bringing police back to campuses will have an inhibiting effect and it will hurt them, all right? It will diminish their careers as criminals, right? This idea that you could just banish police officers from campuses filled with criminal behavior and just allow criminals and bullies to take over and wreck education, right? Many schools did this in the aftermath of the George Floyd shooting. Well, what happens? You get spasms of criminal violence wrecking schools and how many other lives are ruined? People who are bullied, education destroyed, because you allowed the crims to surge into power in schools. And that's inevitably what happens when you have a lot of antisocial students, right, who no longer have to fear the police coming around.
got to read Age of this uh, this great book here by Christopher Cordwell. And doggone it, if I didn't just uh, lose my place. <laughs> oh man, I had it all lined up. Hang on here. This is a criticism. I'm saying it really as a form of sympathy. That you gain this vicarious thrill? How exactly did it benefit any black man or woman in America that for eight years the president of the United States looked like them? Yeah, how exactly were, were blacks advanced by having a president who looked like them? Okay. So, civil rights was found to be disappointing. All right, so the civil rights industrial complex, they had to keep pushing on and on and on, more and more money for the disadvantaged and the dysfunctional and the antisocial and the, the criminal, all right? So the, the results of civil rights were ranging from disappointing to absolute disastrous, all right? You had massive increase in crime, naturally, once you started passing civil rights legislation because the immediate effects of civil rights legislation is to start making certain groups sacred, immune from criticism. That's what woke means, that uh, certain minority groups, such as blacks, gays, trans, uh, certain women in certain contexts, right, uh, certain Latinos in certain contexts, right, once you say that these groups must be held immune from criticism, then that does not tend to produce good behavior. And the results of civil rights have just been ranging from disappointing to absolute disastrous, right? So uh, white Americans were probably surprised that the advance in black fortune slowed after civil rights legislation compared to its rate in the first two decades after the Second World War. But now with civil rights legislation, you had more and more people who were very low achieving who felt more and more entitled. So in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, uh, Alan Bloom put it, 1987, blacks proved as indigestible in university systems after civil rights as they had been in earlier generations. So he was a professor at Cornell University in upstate New York when black radicals bearing assault rifles roused visiting parents out of bed on Parents Weekend in 1969 and demanded concessions from the university administration. All right, these are kids who got into elite universities on the basis of affirmative action, not on merit. And then they found that they couldn't pass their classes, so they got angry and took up guns. And the university administration went along with the concessions demanded by these criminals. So from Alan Bloom's perspectability, the indigestibility and the radicalism were two sides of the same coin. Cornell now had a large number of students who were manifestly unqualified and unprepared and therefore faced an inevitable choice, fail most of them or pass them without there having learned anything. So black power, which hit the universities like a tidal wave at just that moment, provided a third way too. And then there are all these excuses for you know low achievement by these pet minority groups. So two months after signing the Voting Rights Act, right, the black Los Angeles neighborhood of Watts underwent race riots that left dozens of people dead, a thousand people injured, thousands more in, in prison. So there was a great deal of the bluff about civil rights legislation. It was based on lies. It was based on bad legal reasoning, bad social reasoning, bad psychological reasoning, right? So 
President Johnson and his other Southern white apostles of civil rights claim, oh, we know, you know, black folk better than you do. Well, turned out they didn't, right? Their, their legislation was an absolute disaster. So now every corner of America has been racialized. No wonder Americans have much diminished love for their country. No one's permitted to just sit back and allow social change to happen. Now every American has to be enlisted as a zealous soldier in the war on racism. Section 706G of the Civil Rights Act allows the government to compel affirmative action, ordering the hiring of black people or any other equitable relief as the court deems appropriate. If they can just find that an employer institution is intentionally engaged or is unintentionally engaging in any unlawful practice, which means not having the requisite number of different minority groups in its workforce, even though different people have different gifts and are going to be differently suited for different jobs. So civil rights legislation opened up virtually all American businesses to lawsuits for discrimination, whether they engaged in it intentionally or not, which destroys social cohesion. This is Christopher so you Caldwell. Just talk a little bit about that. All right. This is the. I'm, I'm glad that we spoke about um, you know hemlines and and jewelry and um, and popular music first because this is a central theme of the book and it is the book. It, it, it is the one that has I think garnered the most attention, positive and negative. I think when people seek to sort of like sum up, um, let's say, the import of the book as simply as possible, they say this is a book about the unintended consequences of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And um, I don't necessarily dispute that. I do, you know, I do think it's, it, it does make it necessary for me to make plain that um, because I'm describing the unintended consequences of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does not mean that I don't think the Civil Rights Act addressed a very serious problem. And it does not mean that I, um, that I question in any way the desire for equality from, from people who are, who are, are left out of it. Um, but I do believe that, the, um, that, that that act, because it was so powerful, um, uh, became very attractive to policymakers in other fields. I think that Americans, the, the public opinion about the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is very, is very hard to gauge. It's very protean. It's very hard to see what people wanted. But the, the country came around a consensus that because this was a serious problem, this was a worthwhile thing to do. But I think that Americans thought it was limited by that problem. And it turned out not to be. Um, the remedies for segregation turned out to be much, much more intrusive than people had anticipated when they began debating the, the Civil Rights Act. I'm talking about Other, lots of things from as a model action to busing. And something else happened, and that's what brings the, the, the sweep of the story forward, between the 70s and the 90s, which is that the tools of desegregation started to be used to fix almost every problem of exclusion. It came to fix the problem of a woman not feeling she was advancing fast enough in a corporate hierarchy, of, or of a gay man feeling left out because people were making jokes about homosexuality at his, at his office. And it pretty soon turned into a second constitution by which the constitution we think of as the constitution could be overruled. I, I, I think this background is a little bit necessary before we start talking about, about Baki, but that was indeed a watershed. Well, I think one of the, the you have a series of um, arresting quotes for other types of, of claims to rights, and this is sometimes called the, the rights revolution. Um, although increasingly it is described as a side of civil rights. So for instance, you know, Joe Biden yesterday described you know, transgender uh, uh, rights as the civil rights mm -hmm. of our time. 
Um, when it comes to polarization, um, to give to give this idea in, yeah. in probably the, the simplest way I, I possibly could, um, the Civil Rights Act um, was dealing with a problem, um, segregation, that is a really special problem. It, it is the probably the unique great problem of the United States. Um, and it was a problem that for centuries in different forms had defied solution. Um, the government was able to do away with segregation by using extremely strong medicine. Um, the Civil Rights Act was a strong act. It was a much stronger act than the act that John F. Kennedy was discussing during his lifetime, which people had thought actually too strong to get passed. Um, Lyndon Johnson was able to get it passed through his, his political skill. But it had a lot of new um, government offices and instances in it. Uh, it had a, an expanded role for you know, um, civil rights agencies. It had, uh, it had the EEOC. It had, uh, what did uh, that stand for? Yeah, let's uh, explain uh, right, that. It's now the um, Equal, Opportunity, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity right. Commission. Um, the acronym has changed over the years. <laughs> uh, but um, it had the EEOC. It had offices of civil rights. Um, and on top of that, it had a, a whole number of offenses that... Um, uh, that for which people could now be prosecuted and sued, and, and you know, involving discrimination in a whole range of places, starting with you know, voting booths, um, public accommodations, meaning hotels and bars, etc., uh, public facilities, um, but also businesses. And here, uh, this was very innovative. The the Civil Rights Act took took aim at private association, and so it it, it showed itself willing to tack against, um, um, and some might even say repeal the prevailing understanding of the First Amendment as protecting not just freedom of assembly, but freedom of association, mm. okay? Um, and it worked, okay? So, so this was very effective in, in undoing segregation. One thing that seems quite clear is that Americans did not expect this toolkit to be used for things other than fighting segregation. Um, and over the years, it was. It came to be used for, um, it came to be used for adjudicating immigrants' rights, women's rights, children's rights, gay rights, transgender rights. Um, and this was an, this, as more and more of the country's political life moved from, let's say, the, the, the old Democratic-Republican area of politics that you voted on and into this new area where... Um, which was decided by, let's say, judges and, and regulators. Like bus. I think I could yes, issue that with yes. busing. You can, you can talk about busing. You can talk mm -hmm. about affirmative action, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the, the country changed. I mean, and, and, and so you, you had, so things were not just, people were not just changing their minds about, about things. And it's not actually even clear how much people were changing their minds about things. It's just that authority was moving from one government system to another government system. And these two government systems, over time, developed each their own logic. And I would say they became like two constitutions. Right. Let's, we we want to spend some time there, which is like, how did it create a rival constitutional understanding exactly? This is something you get in the book a lot, which is that there's a lot of judicial elites and, and others who don't really buy into the founding story of America, but very much do buy into what you call a civil rights constitutional framework. What does that mean exactly? Let's, let's lay out what exactly that understanding of America and its history through that lens looks like. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a sort of a, a cultural question that people will, everyone will have a different answer to that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I think that I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, we all have this, you know, our own ideas about the, you know, the history of the idea of freedom in the mm -hmm. world. Um, I don't really go into that in the book. I go much more into structures. And, yeah. so, 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 so a follow-up then, something that sort of critics of the book have referenced is the idea that the notion, the notion of what America is and what it represents has changed multiple times. So yes, you had the constitution of the 18th century, but you had Andrew Jackson. His presidency which sort of changed the notion of who could participate in the democratic process. You obviously had Abraham Lincoln, the Civil Rights Act. The Civil War. Civil, right? Yeah, Civil War and all that sort of stuff. And the 14th. And 15th. You, you, had the, you had the progressive era. Women are getting the right to vote, but then also corporations, sort of antitrust stuff, and then you had the New Deal. So what was it unique about this sort of reconsideration that made the Civil Rights Act era different? Uh, you know, you, you're just speaking about changing the notion of what the country was mm -hmm. about. I think that this, um, what changed in the 1960s is it changed the means 
through which power was exercised. And um, uh, so you, um, and I quite understand that we've always had bureaucracies, we've always had judges, but they had, th- th- there was a new dynamic that allowed them to produce laws. And one, one example you could give is bilingual education. You know, bilingual education is something that the Supreme Court um, described as possible and desirable in a 1974 uh, decision called Lao. But then it was offices of civil rights at what was then the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, I think, mm. that wrote the guidelines for it and, and imposed them on all schools in the country, um, uh, all schools that had a certain number of, of, of people speaking foreign languages. Um, and that was done without a vote. There is no bilingual education law. Um, you could say that um, Roe v. Wade is a, is a, is a similar example of, a, of something that took on the force of law without having ever been enacted as law. Um, so I'm, I'm really talking about two ways of doing governmental business more than two visions of the, you know, of the world. Well, to push you a little bit on that, though, I mean, the New Deal, much of the infrastructure that is solidified here in Washington, you're kind of describing the same thing that we had whenever it came to our intervention into markets and our intervention to way big business functions in the progressive era. So why is it you- Congress that a lot of people, particularly conservatives, envisioned at the start of the, of the Roosevelt administration, they, they did not materialize. All of these things, all of the measures of the, um, all of, the, measures of, of, of the New Deal were voted on. Um, uh, and this is different. This is, rights are things that, 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 a, that a judge can say, you know, this is something that you've always, that you've always had. Mm-hmm. This, is, um, um, this is not something that we vote on. That's the way, for instance, gay marriage was done. There were a lot of votes about gay marriage in the country. Most of them were against gay marriage. Um, and yet a right was found to it, just an essential human right. Um, uh, and it became law that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So connecting this to the – obviously there's a lot of space in between, but just to cover up this section. And what is the conception between this sort of new form of governance and sort of our current political dysfunction today? Yes. Um, I think that over time there was, a, there was an interesting sort of weakness and strength in the, in the, in the civil rights laws. The weakness was if people if, – if, if, if the civil rights laws were open to, to voting, they would be vulnerable, right, so long as – the beneficiaries of civil rights law were isolated and made up only 10 or 12% of the population. Um, but you rap- very rapidly had a transformation of, of, of civil rights law. There are two things that happened. One, it got deeper. You had you know, things like affirmative action and, and busing. The more was deemed necessary to protect civil rights. But the other is that it spread to other groups. And so you had a coalition of beneficiaries of these protected rights. Now it was not just blacks in the South who were protected. It was blacks throughout the country. And not, and, and not only that, it was, soon it was women as well could claim certain rights. And pretty soon you had a coalition of people who were protected by this way of delivering rights. And they had an interest in strengthening it. Mm. Um, and it's not just this collection of beneficiaries of the rights. Actually, the people by whom the rights were delivered had an interest in, 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 in extending it. Um, judges, regulators. At the same time, you had people who were not the beneficiaries, who tended to perceive the changes that came as things, quite correctly actually, as things being taken away from them. And who were those? And, and, and what's this, like, who were those people who were not the beneficiaries mm. and what was being taken away, at oh, least in their perception right. or in actuality? Right. So at the beginning, I think that, um, as I described the way Americans viewed the situation in the, in the early 60s, I think that Americans thought of civil rights as almost a foreign policy issue. It had to do with the South. It was the stuff they were watching on TV in the South. And there was a cast of villains mm-hmm. who were obviously in need of correction in the mind of the, of, of the country, but they were rather small. Then came a next, the next period when it was clear that, that, that when we talked about civil rights, we were talking about a nationwide program, right? And then you had a different set of people who were having things taken away from them. For instance, the families in an ethnic neighborhood in Boston who 
you know, had children who were going to play on the same high school football team that their father did and their grandfather did and their great-grandfather did, we're now told that they would be going to a different school in a different and probably dangerous part of town. Um, and then it spreads on from there. I mean, it's basically the, the story of um, intersectionality, you know? Mm. It spreads to women's rights. And men are told that, you know, you cannot sort of like make the same jokes around the, uh, you know, around the office, you know, meeting table that you used to. And um, it goes on. You mm. know? So this is interesting. Do you think, so speaking of the inter- intersectionality idea, I feel as if what we're really talking about there, and this is what Michael Lynn discussed in his book, is the idea that elites, particularly college-educated elites, gained more power culturally, economically, but politically, and were able to sort of input their social um, rules and expectations into society. And you see this in other societies too. So if you had abortion laws liberalized around the same time, but they were liberalized by law. I mean, parliament debated them, the laws were passed, their head of government sort of like signed them into law, and they became, and they became law. Um, here it was done in, in a judicial way. I do believe that in... Um, in these European countries, there was a lot of um, imitation of the um, of the American civil rights model. Um, there was a lot of, particularly with things like affirmative action and that sort of thing. But you're right; this is not the only uh, strain that's running through these decades. There are other things contributing um, to social change. I think that we've just dealt with the civil rights one because that's it is central to my book. Um, but it's it's also the most controversial um, thing, perhaps, that I've said. Yeah. So so you have when you talk about you know elites. You know, there's a the role of Vietnam in our own in our own um, sort of social evolution. In this. Hey, a little bit more here from uh, Christopher Caldwell. This conversation took place February 26, 2020. It's always easy in hindsight, of course, to say that the, to uh, to say that it went off the rails at some point. But I think it's very interesting that given the constitutional, cultural, and moral logic of the project, you say it was in a way inevitable affirmative action and, and political correctness. Yeah. Yes, I think I think that. Uh, you mentioned that I use the word um, that I use the word compelling. Another word, uh, which I think has had an interesting rise over the last fifty years, is iconic. People now use iconic instead of it just where they used to just say famous. All right, but but it, but in fact, in fact, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is iconic, and we don't want to we don't want to say anything uh, negative about it um, because we treasure the uh, its we treasure its achievement of the main thing it set out to achieve. But I do believe that there was a a tragic flaw in it. It worked because it was supposed to overthrow um, certain democratic irregularities in the South, or let's just say some bad results that were being produced by um, Southern democracy. And it did that by short-circuiting the American constitutional process. I think we can now see. There were, there was little, there were few checks and balances on it. And the way it tended to work, and I think this is one of the things that was attractive about it um, at the federal level, is that you'd get, you'd get a judgment, a rule made by an office of civil rights in one of the cabinet departments, and then it would be okayed and elevated into a principle by um, the Supreme Court, and then the office of civil rights would then um, sort of elaborate on the, that rule, and you get kind of a ratcheting back and forth without, without um, the legislative branch ever being brought into this. Um, it was a very efficient way to make law, but it left people, uh, it left people out. Um, now, there's something I hasten to add when I talk this way, which is that this is not a work of legal theory or legal history. It's, it's not a constitutional, um, it, it is not a jurisprudential sort of, um, sort of like puzzle solving. I'm discussing basically the culture, the political culture of these, um, uh, 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 of this, yeah? <laughs> the, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, the first, you know, you're right, I don't, I don't tend to look at roads not taken, but the first level of change that you, um, it's, a very, it's a puzzle about the year 1964 and I don't like to, to get stuck in 1964 in talking about this book because the book leaves 1964 and you know by about page 15 but um 
But a puzzle about 1964 is that first level in which you banned government discrimination but, but left the private sector mostly intact is roughly what the Kennedy Civil Rights Bill was, which he found impossible to get out of committee. Um, you know, and this didn't go far enough? Yeah. Okay. No, I, no, I don't know that, that it was because it didn't go far enough. At the time. I think so, okay. yes. And I mean, it was the chairman who were keeping it uh, bottled up. And yet, Johnson came up with something that was much, much more far-reaching, and he got it through Congress. I think that, that a lot of the explanation is the, the effect of the Kennedy assassination on the national psyche, and, and, and actually Johnson's skill in, producing, in, in presenting this as something, as the president's most passionate wish, you know? Um, so, but once you got to, um, once you had it in this form, um, as I say, it was not apparent that, that, that it would be expanded as it was. But I repeat, I think that the tragic flaw of the bill was the prerogatives, that I would say in terms of, 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 of checks and balances, the, the, the constitutional flaw was, was that whenever the question arose of whether the powers of that dispensation should be expanded, that, that question was addressed to the people whose authority would be expanded thereby. That is, it asked bureaucrats whether bureaucrats should have more say over determining whether this was right or wrong, and it asked judges whether judges should have more say. And I think that the answers it got were, in retrospect, predictable, although it has taken a half a century for them to play out. I wanted to turn to Reagan, if we could. Um, but first, I wanted to raise as well the topic of immigration, much on our minds uh, in the age of Trump, of course. Um, and uh, in many ways, I think the frustrations of um, this is an implicit argument in your book. It's just a small piece of it, of course. But the frustrations of the Republican base or the conservative base or the – it's a, actually a little too confining a way of describing it. The, the sort of America that believes in the older Constitution or at least implicitly and understands their country that way, um, the beginning of, of, I would say, the, the escalation of the populist movement that started with Reagan really got a lot of fuel from the, what seemed to be a betrayal in the 1986 Hart-Seller Immigration Act, right? Um, no, Hart-Seller is, is 65. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yeah, yeah. 86 is IRCA. Yeah, um, right. yeah, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hart-Seller and the point is that uh, the employer enforcement mechanisms... Man, this uh, interlocutor, this moderator talks way too much, right? If you're, if you're interviewing, if you're moderating, you should talk as little as possible. The shorter the question, the better. Bloody hell. The um, border security, as you put... The that's right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So, uh, you know, to, to, to refresh in 1986, the, the IRCA uh, bill was to be a great... I mean, there was this... Uh, you know, there was a new... A new kind of immigration had arisen since Lyndon Johnson's immigration reform in 1965. And you now had, you know, there had always been braceros or seasonal agriculture workers in the Southwest, but you now had a very large flow of them, several million of them. And, um, you know, they were having an impact on certain communities whose votes mattered and people were really upset about it. And so there was an attempt, a really bipartisan attempt, I don't think the parties differed that much on the question of immigration then, to come up with a grand compromise. And that is to give a very generous amnesty. And when I say very generous, um, in 1986, the amnesty applied to everyone. I mean, you could, you, citizenship was offered under the Special Agricultural Worker Program to anyone could, who could show that he had done 60 days of agricultural work in the last 12 months in the United States. Um, and so there were 3 million people amnestied or, or, or given citizenship that way. However, it was everyone understood that that would be a, a tremendous incentive to immigration. So there were... Uh, also, some, some draconian penalties agreed. There was, there was stiffened, stiffened border security. It was $123 million. People thought that was an incredible amount of money to spend on border security, $123 million. But there was also, the key part of the bill was employer sanctions. It would become illegal to hire an illegal immigrant. Um, some employers groused about that. They said, you're going to turn me into a policeman, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there were sanctions on employers for hiring illegal immigrants. But under the conditions of, of anti-discrimination law, 
How were you going to do that? How were you going to decide which of your employees you were going to ask whether they had been born outside of the country? I mean, people who looked Mexican, etc. It turned out there was absolutely no way to enforce this law that did not fall afoul of the law. And so those employer sanctions never happened. And within a year or two, you had, you know, uh, you had people in, um, in HUD, in, in the Housing and Urban Development um, Department, uh, 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 promising that they would not enforce the law, actually. They said, don't worry, I'm coming here. You know, I'm not coming here to enforce the law. I just want to explain it to you. So there was never any balance to it. It became a pure, it became a pure amnesty plus incentive to further immigration. And that, in turn, really poisoned the immigration issue forever. It, it remains, to this day, impossible to talk about it um, among, among conservatives. And um, I, I think that it's still, it's still driving American politics, and it, it explains the, a great deal of the rhetoric of the 2016 election. Uh, I just, I don't think I fully explained what I meant last time by saying I was going to praise the conservative intellectuals, but I'll explain that, and then I'll go on to, to play my normal role, which is to condemn them. Um, uh, and the politics of the New York Times, the argument that they've been making for the past... There is no, no theoretical reason, but I, I have to say you sound a lot like the conservatives who say, well, who could possibly object to presenting a driver's license at a polling station, as long as we ask that of everybody? And, 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 but it creates... I am one of those conservatives. Yes, yes, exactly. So you're right. There's no, that's a perfectly legitimate theoretical um, question to, to, to raise, but it comes up against constituencies that have counter-arguments, whether they are principled or, or pragmatic, to make against it. I would say about... Uh, I think I, I, I view this less, this regime less in intellectual terms than, than you do. I think that there's a... I do not think that the political evolution of, of the country over the last 60 years has had as much as we have tended to believe it, it has to do with, um, with arguments won and arguments lost. I think that the Reagan administration, the intellectuals around the Reagan administration, thought they had pretty much won all the arguments in, in the early 1980s and that the arguments would make the society change. But it really doesn't work that way. There are levers of power that are really immune to arguments and until they are removed, they'll continue to function for the people who wish them, them to function. And I'm struck by, you know, the nature of political correctness. I think that the conservatives in, in, in the country in particular are, are always assuming that they're going to be able to overthrow political correctness as soon as people see how stupid it is. And so they tend to tell jokes. I mentioned a few of them in the, in the book. I mean, so like the Galehead Hut, which is a hut of the Appalachian Mountain Club, up, and it's up at the top of one of the rockiest mountains in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. It's five miles from the nearest road on the edge of a cliff, and it's wheelchair accessible. Um, you know, and then there's, there's sort of like, so Bank of, Bank of America in, 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 in the 1990s was, um, it, it, it equipped its drive-through teller machines with Braille, okay? I mean, and these things are like, everyone sort of says, okay, you know what, as soon as, as, soon as these people see, you know, like, where all this sort of like politically correct rhetoric is leading, they're just going to just like laugh it out of the public square. But it's just, it's just not true. And, I, and, and, and as I say, I haven't written this book as a, as a lawyer um, uh, or, a, or a, you know, or, or a prosecutor or anything like that. But I think that there are some, you know, people who have studied the, the, the anti-discrimination law and its effects um, um, closely. There is, of course, um, Ken Masugi of, of the Claremont Institute. There is Shep Melnick of Boston College, who, whose work I found very interesting. There's um, Gail Harriet of, uh, of the University of, of California at San Diego, whose work I've discovered more recently. Um, they tend to sort of see the encroachment of political correctness in the sort of like wielding of certain legal powers, you know, like Section 6 and 7 of the Civil Rights Act or Title IX of the, um, of the 1972 amendments to the Higher Education Act. I mean, let's take, let's take that one, for instance. So, say, so Title IX is, you know, it basically says, 
It's like the simplest language in the world. It basically says, you know, sex shouldn't be a barrier to advancement in higher education. Well, you know, very quickly you had laws that required, you know, e equalization of, of, um, of, um, of school athletic budgets between women and men. It's been used for questions of sexuality. It's been used for transgender. The Obama uh, administration tried to use it to um, enforce a, um, a uniform standard of, of anti-sexual harassment and, and uh, uh, law on all universities. And once they did this by sending letters to, to, to universities, you know, when the federal government issues a finding against your university that you're in violation of, of federal anti-discrimination law, that has an effect on accreditation, um, on your accreditation, which is by law, I believe, required to consider such things. So you, this is, a, this is a, a, a dagger pointed to the, at the heart of your ability to operate as an institution of higher education. That's a, sort of a, an example picked out of, um, uh, you know, it's one example that could be picked out among dozens. But I think that winning these arguments over conceptions of the best regime, it, it, it's, it's kind of beside the point of the, of the structures for wielding power that exist in, in the government. Good evening. Just got to talk close to it. Good evening. Augustus Salisbury, the very first one, based on uh, race, religion, sex, and national origin. And should have stopped at that instead of all this other uh, social engineering since then. Uh, my question is this. Uh, isn't this, in terms of not only this election, but the next, probably over the next 25 years, in terms of the cultural war going on in America, and probably worldwide too, taking a nationalistic, globalistic, uh, a nationalist, a globalistic nationalist view, uh, isn't this basically the uh, petit bourgeois versus crony capitalists and socialists? Kind of. Um, I, I, uh, I, I think, um, you know, one thing that we didn't get into today um, is that there's a tendency, uh, we, we've talked about this, this system as one that tends to favor judicial and bureaucratic power. I mean, those tend to be associated with, with high position. At least they are in our country. I mean, we could talk about the sociology of it. You know, I, I, Antonin Scalia alluded to it a lot in his dissent in the Obergefell decision, but he's said many times that, that um, that you know, the Supreme Court is made up of nine people who went to either um, Harvard or Yale for law school. Um, and if you have a system that is, you know... So does this uh, U.S. Supreme Court ruling only affect Harvard and the University of North Carolina? No, it affects not only all American colleges, but you'll have right, wider implications throughout American life. Employers are going to become much more leery of... Uh, using affirmative action they're going to just try to change the name for affirmative action but it's going to affect them too this is dennis prager this morning what difference did it make what if the Supreme court rate ruling on affirmative action this came out last week in the wall street journal a decision on race conscious college admissions could have implications for corporate diversity programs you mean like united airlines which said that it's reserving half of its flight school places for women and racial minorities do you really want your pilots to be chosen on that basis? Hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating that three justices actually thought that it was constitutional. What those justices did is confuse what they would like to see with what is constitutional. They're not the same things. U.S. companies are preparing for a Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action to present new tests to their hiring and other personnel decisions. The outcome of two parallel cases, which involve admissions policies at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina, won't directly affect employers' practices and policies, which are generated by a different statute than admissions. But 
Lawyers and business leaders say they expect that any decision restricting or prohibiting race-conscious admissions could lead to a more to more legal challenges to company hiring and promotion decisions. So is, is America a happier place? Are racial relations better? If the average black person or, or Hispanic, I would say Asian, but Asians actually have been hurt by admissions based on whether to make changes to existing diversity programs, including renaming them. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. I'll tell you what, folks. You should, uh, we should have a lottery here on on what will the new name be uh, for uh, existing diversity programs. What, I, I know the left like I know my family, but I can't figure out what will the new term be if diversity is rendered liable for legal action against it. So Harvard University was just so dishonest in their argumentation. They, they argued that race is never used to discriminate against students. But if you use race to promote certain students because of race, you are inevitably discriminating against other students because of race. So one of the more obvious findings of this whole controversy is just how dishonest our university system is. What is a synonym for diversity? But I'll, I'll tell you this. They will come up with one. These people are geniuses. It's like gender affirming is the opposite of what gender affirming care does. Gender affirming care is gender denying care. Happen, you you made yourself miserable for no good reason. So it's just a little example of black people. It's a very very telling piece. It's titled "We're Really Worried: What Do Colleges Do Now After Affirmative Action Ruling." And the, the language is, uh, if you heard me the first hour, you heard this, I'm sorry, it is a, a rule of life that people don't remember something until they hear it at least twice. That's why you hear phone numbers and ads three times. They've done a lot of testing. But when they say, this is, this, is what, uh, this is what blew my mind, that young blacks will feel that they don't matter. Many also fear that applications for black, Latino, and other students of color will drop. Okay? I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. If they want to go to college, then maybe they'll drop in terms of prestigious colleges where it's very hard to get in and rigorous to stay in. But why, why will it drop generally? So is a black student going to say, if I don't go to Princeton, then I'm not going to go to college? Why will, it, why will they drop? That's a, by the way, that's not a criticism of the LA Times. I, I, I don't get it. Why will they drop? You're less likely to get into a rigorous college, quote-unquote prestigious college. So your theory is if I don't go to a prestigious college, I won't go to college? Listen, as far as I'm concerned, I wish college uh, uh, college students declined in number by half. But that's a separate issue entirely. But here's the key. Here's the key. A key priority will be to assure those students that they matter. So here was my point, reading that. Yeah, if you don't think you matter, all right, there's nothing that uh, society or uh, any of our institutions can do to shore up your weak self-esteem. If you are leading a life that is valuable to those around you, right, if you're important to your family, if you're important to your friends, you're important to your community, if you're volunteering your time, you're important in your church or synagogue, you're not going to worry about whether or not you matter. They're told now that they don't matter. They're told that only their skin color matters. We will accept you based on your skin color means you don't matter. An organization focused on education equity. 
just out of curiosity, if Ed Trust West went out of business tomorrow, would the country be a better or worse or make no difference place? The sweeping decision eliminated the use of race in admissions decisions nationwide for the first time since the high court allowed the practice in 1978 to promote diversity. Is there a constitutional requirement for diversity that I missed? No, there's not. That's the whole point of civil rights legislation. Christopher Caldwell makes the point. Civil rights legislation superseded our Constitution. It superseded our understanding of what it means to have private property. It superseded our understanding of right to freedom of association. All sorts of other rights got denigrated and reduced in the name of this civil rights onslaught. Aren't judges supposed to rule on the constitutionality of an issue? not on the desirability of an issue? Students for Fair Admissions, a nonprofit opposed to racial preferences, alleged that Harvard and the University of North Carolina violate constitutional guarantees of equal protection by considering race in admissions decisions, and that the Ivy Yeah, and do you, do you think that this uh, black Supreme Court, Justice what, Jumenji Jackson, I mean, she would never have gotten to this position without affirmative action, right? She's never written anything brilliant, or even noteworthy in her entire career. She would not rank among America's top 20,000 legal minds. And yet, she sits on the U.S. Supreme Court solely because of affirmative action and nothing to do with any merit on her part. Elite campus specifically discriminates against Asian Americans. Of course it does. <laughs> That's the whole point. point. The High Court agreed in a majority opinion written by Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr., the ruling noted that the appellate court found Harvard's affirmative action program resulted in fewer admissions of Asian American students and the Ivy League campus's assertion that race was never used as a negative factor in selections cannot withstand scrutiny. What a nice way of saying Harvard lied. <laughs> I got to use that from now on. This article is really a deb. All these phrases that I need to incorporate, whether you matter or not. <laughs> that was That was the key. But this is a good one. It's not that Harvard lied. It's that its assertions cannot, what was the word? Withstand scrutiny. I love that. You know, the earth is flat. Well, sir, just need to tell you that that assertion cannot withstand scrutiny. I love it. Yeah, Harvard lied. That was, uh, that was the Supreme Court's own words about Harvard. But Roberts also wrote that, quote, nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected the applicant's life. Okay, let's get back to Christopher Cordwell from this 2020 you know, discussion. R- runs largely through the courts. Well, what are our courts? Our courts, you know, we have a very, very, we have a credential-based legal system, much more so than at the time of Abraham Lincoln, say, you know. So, so you know, we have a group of people who go to law school. They, they're probably equal to the 1% or maybe the 2%. Among those 1%, it's a very elite group who become judges. And among those people who become judges, it's a very elite group who become constitutional judges, whether, you know, at the circuit level or the, or the, or the, or the federal level. So we're talking about a real, a real elite here, certainly. So I do think that, that, that this phenomenon that we've been talking about tonight, I go into it a little bit in the book, but I don't want to introduce the whole argument now, is consistent with a good deal more elitism in, 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 with elite rule, with oligarchy or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, so, yes, I think that the re- rebellion against it is class-based and does tend to get to get made in a democratic language. Thank you. Um, when I describe this evolution, yes, I think it was possible for a lot of people, you know, kind of Eeyore types to say, look, this is all going to go bad, okay? And, and, and certain of those attempts to predict what was going to happen 
turned out to be correct. I mean, there's one I quote in the book. There was a big debate in the Senate between George Smathers, a, a conservative uh, Democrat from, from Florida, and uh, Hugh Scott, a, a liberal Republican from, um, from Pennsylvania. Smathers was an opponent of the Civil Rights uh, uh, Act, and, 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 and Scott was a, was a strong supporter. And Smathers said, you know, I'm looking at this, and this is going to lead to school busing. And Scott not only disagreed with him, he mocked him on the floor of the Senate. You know, he said, you know, I've read this bill a number of times. I see nothing about busing in this thing. But Smathers knew it was there. He knew that it was, so, so there were people who saw it. But I do not think that, you know, there have been similar, there are similar arguments get made over, you know, whether, over the 14th Amendment and whether people know, knew that it would be used as it wound up being used. And I don't think so. I do not see it as a, as a, as a swindle. Uh, you know, if anything, it's a, it's a tragedy, you know. I mean, the unintended consequences are tragic rather than, then they're, they're unintended. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, but absolutely disastrous, including in my own neighborhood, which used to just south of me, used to be 90% Jewish, 99% white. Then they brought in affirmative action and then uh, school busing to local H Hamilton High School, which was one of the premier high schools in Los Angeles, premier public schools. They brought in busing, destroyed the education at the school massively increased violence at the school in the surrounding area and the, the whole area just just descended into gang banging and drug sales so this is more christopher caldwell here february 5 2020 the, the sort of race-based story here is for 50 years since the passage of the civil rights act america put itself back on the right trajectory and there's a whole class of people who are aggrieved and bittered etc pick your sort of like word for that um and then the class-based argument is obviously that well actually um during that same period in ways related both to governance but also related to economics and culture um there actually were groups that were mostly organized by class that were sort of pushed vast and usual usually silent majority sort of having its way as we do in, in a perhaps as we had in a perhaps somewhat mythologized but certainly also somewhat true picture of america in the 60s and and before and that You've had the, the shift of power from the latter constitution to the former constitution. That is, from, you know, from mm -hmm. the, 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 let's just say the balance of powers constitution to the, to the rights-based judicial constitution has favored certain people greatly. And a comment in the chat, 40, in my 20s, I was in a relationship with a legal assistant for a big firm, and she told me about a cross-dressing judge. Yeah, well, the more intelligent you are, the more you enjoy spending time in abstract thought the more time you spend in abstract thought rather than concrete reality you know the more open you're going to be to ideas and practices that would just seem absolutely crazy to anyone who spent a great deal of time in reality so brilliant people come up with a lot of brilliant things but they also come up with a lot of stupid things left others out in the cold and i think that increasingly you have the parties divided the democrats you know it's very hard to say you know who's the party of the upper class and who's the party of the of the you know of the working class now it certainly looks like the democrats are um the party of the commanding heights of the economy and if there is such a thing as an oligarchy or a plutocracy it would seem to be the democratic party that represents it at the same time the democratic party is is sort of like making much more explicit demands for for working people and if you looked at per capita income it might still be true that republicans were higher than the democrats i don't i have not seen mm. that that number but i think a good way to, to divide the parties a more reliable way of dividing the parties would be to say you know Democrats are the party of the, of the new constitution. Mm. Republicans are the party of the old constitution, of the pre-1964 constitution. And, and a couple of things come from that, okay? One is, if you want to be really crude, um, you could say that, that you know, Democrats look like the party of winners, Republicans look like the party of losers. Um, I think that Ron Brownstein has tried to say that in his own way when he talks about a, you know, a coalition um, of the ascendant. Mm. But the other thing is, 
if you do look at it this way, you can see why Democrats believe that the only thing, that the real thing motivating the uprising against their power structure is race. Um, I don't believe that myself. But it, it is related to race at one remove. Mm. So I, that's where I want to spend some time because I think the biggest problem I have with an analysis like this is that it almost buys into a leftist frame. Conservative turn that the Carter administration took with the nomination of, of Paul Volcker as, you know, Fed chief. In 1980, Ronald Reagan came to power. And, and I think he did some extraordinary things to avoid the confrontation over these two constitutions that seemed to be happening then. I think that you had a... Um, I think the... The reforms of the 1960s, and here we can speak more generally, but, but in a rough sense, I mean around race, around sex, and around America's position in the world, um, you know, Vietnam patriotism. I think the reforms of the 1960s were quite unpopular, and the country was headed for a real conflict over them. And Ronald Reagan seemed to be bringing that conflict to the head, to a head. But he actually, he actually appeased it. He actually calmed it down. How did he do that? I would say he did it mostly through debt, and the debt... Um, I, I, you know, we've talked about certain controversial parts of my book. This part might be more controversial among conservatives, all right? But, I, but the, uh, the debt that he ran um, took many forms. There was, the, there was the government debt, right? But I think that the country also began to seek ways to economize on the cost of, 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 of let's say, capital investment. Mm. It, um, it began to import labor from abroad in a lot of different ways. I mean, it did, you had first, you know, you had obviously people, immigrants coming in, but outsourcing too was a way of importing cheaper labor. Um, and free trade wound up being an abandonment of a certain infrastructure that we had, you know, in favor of consumption then. A bargain on free trade, on economics, on outsourcing labor, and the civil rights. Because to me, that just seems like a consequence of accumulated capital. If, if you read the book, you'll find yeah. it, it connects very closely to what yeah. I was saying. And, it, and it, it connects in this way. You had as very often, often happens in, in politics. You had popular acceptance of a narrowly focused program in, in 1964 to end segregation. It gradually spread to embrace a whole bunch of far-flung and very different programs. As it did, well, let's just say, at the beginning, it wound up being way more expensive than anyone bargained for. I mean, the, the combination of the Great Society, which we can debate it, but it, it seems to me that the, the purpose of the Great Society was to lay down the material bases for the new type of country you're going to have after, after desegregation. Um, the, the, the combined impact of um, the Great Society and, and, and Vietnam was, was a change in the, in the, in the scale of, of, of government that was not ratified, that had not been ratified in the same way that the Civil Rights Act had. And so you had this really leviathan government proceeding forward without a lot of popular um without a lot of popular so this is why republicans don't care about all the news articles about this is why trump lies like there's no tomorrow right that's a essay by tom edsall says donald trump can claim the title of the most prodigious liar in the history of the presidency how can such a deceitful and duplicitous figure win the white house in the first place then retain the loyalty of so many voters after his endless lies have been exposed? Well, if he is fighting for you, you don't really care that much about what tactics he uses. So the left controls almost all our institutions. Right? The playing field is unlevel against us. So we're simply looking for the most effective champion of our interests. And if he uses lies, he uses lies. Support. So people... You know, there was a large enough constituency by now for this new constitution that people weren't willing to do without it. But it was expensive enough that people weren't willing to pay for it. And that is what 
And that looked like, that tension Mm -hmm. looked like it was going to bring the country down in the mid to late 1970s. That is what Reagan discovered the solution for. And it turns out to have been a temporary solution. So here's the question. So then I think this will tie this all together then. What was the alternative choice that Reagan had? If we're talking about choice here, if, if, if you're saying the choice that he made was debt, whether government or private, what would you do about it? You've outlined a polarized America. You've traced it back to this you know, plan at the end mm-hmm. of this of this book. Um, it just, you know, How about um, a narrative, but, right? So but, 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 better... Yeah, but it's a, it is a narrative. It is a narrative. But I will say I think that, that we are now at the point where there will be no solution that pleases the entire country because there's something that we haven't really spoken about. There's a, there's a real moral aspect to this. Well, how important is it that we find a solution that pleases the entire country? Why don't we just seize power for our people and for our interests? To, to activate this second constitution, to, to sort of like gain the sanction. I kind of like the constitution we had in the 18th century. To me, that's far superior to this civil rights constitution. I would like to do without the entire civil rights industrial complex. To sort of like shift to, to gain the sanction to take a political argument out of the democratic realm and put it into the judiciary or the regulatory realm required making a moral case. Mm-hmm. It couldn't just be, you know, like, oh, let's do, do it this way. It had to be, you know, I know you want to vote on this, but America can't wait. People's rights are being denied. This is an emergency, etc. So the movement to the second constitution was always framed in a, in a moral way. And that means that the, the people who believe in the second constitution believe in it passionately. So generally speaking, people who try to frame arguments to, in moral terms to manipulate you to vote against your interests, right? Be, be skeptical of them. I'm not saying always put your interests ahead of your principles. I'm saying your interests should be a principle to you. It should be a major principle to you to preserve your own way of life and your own people, right? Your interests should be a dominant, if not the dominant principle for your decision-making. And, and they believe that the people who do not believe in the second constitution are bigots, okay? Mm-hmm. The pe- right. Second constitution, remember, is the civil rights industrial complex. People who do not believe in the second constitution, the people who believe in the pre-1964 constitution, expect to vote more. They, they, they don't accept the legitimacy of judges sort of, sort of making law. So they think the people who believe in the second constitution... And Star Rover says all of President Johnson's so-called Great Society legislation was catastrophic for America. I agree. Are totalitarians. So I, I don't see a – I think that we're in a, in a bit of a corner here. Yeah. So before we finish up, something that we both admired about you is your broader work on the world stage just in terms of you know, that's everything from the Philippines to France. There, there's obviously a, a broad – But no, but in, in, in all fairness, like, it's like you said, this is that ultimately I think it's important uh, to get shut up As Dr. Mayor Bissar, we're going to take a second to dive in like we promised and sort of see how the country. There are obviously riots in 1968. Uh, shut up. And a lot of – North equity and poverty. Man, and this, this, this guy is on and on. Economics, and he He's really tried going. to tie the neoliberal against George H. W. Bush. This host along is with awful. The, and again, I actually think the current moment is the rise of the Democratic Leadership Council of the Premier with Michael Lindsay, still Gans, going. ultimately the working class citizen, and coming to some sort of settlement between the left and the right, culturally space where these really controversial but important. Oh man, this guy just goes on and on. What a horrible host. Let's uh, get a little bit more here from Christopher Cordwell. Question has tended to follow Supreme Court decisions. So, I mean, uh, if, you could, if you could look at the parallel to, the previous parallel to transgenderism as having been, been gay rights, I would say, um, you know, there was, a, there was a, a kind of a raucous public discussion about gay rights in the first decade of this um, century. But, but, but ever since it was decided uh, in Obergefell, I think that it has been removed from public consideration. So I think that, that transgenderism will be a live issue only until the next, you know, there's a, 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 a Supreme Court decision making it a right. 
you know, uh, unless there's a challenge of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, which would be a, an even larger problem. Yeah. Well, wait, wait, isn't that, so I, I, the Supreme Court says it's a right, right, that's one thing, but what if, what if a six to three or even a five to four Supreme Court says no, Harvey Weinstein does not have the constitutional right to declare himself female and go shower in front of your daughter and her swimming in the locker room. Won't the, the civil rights co quote unquote coalition rise in fury as one and say this is outrageous and actually elevate the issue to something even bigger than it was before the Okay, here's uh, Christopher Cordwell again. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, is a very hard thing to, it's a very complex topic. It's hard to grasp even when you start talking about it. For one thing, it was presented to the public as the way to solve a highly specific, um, very local problem. And I, I would not even say limited to the South. I would say limited to the, you know, parts of Mississippi and Alabama where there was very serious violence going on, let's say, in the early 60s uh, against the civil rights movement, right? Um, I think that there was a consensus in the public um, that that ought to stop, all right? But there was not so much of a consensus that there was a race problem at all elsewhere in the country. And if you look at the polling, um, if you look at the polling from the early 1960s, you find that about 80% of Americans and overwhelming majorities in the North and the Midwest and on the West Coast believe that, that the blacks that they lived among were actually fairly and equally treated. So I think that, that there was a very strong sense that this was a regional problem that was, was being solved. But that in itself doesn't exhaust the ambiguity of, of, of this act because the act is not really limited to race at all. And when people, I, I think that the, the people that today we call activists were quite aware of that from the beginning. The Civil Rights, the Civil Rights Act protects people based on, um, you know, not just race, but gender, religion, immigrant status, ethnic origin, origin, and other groups have been added. Vietnam veteran status, uh, gay, lesbian, gender identity, that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a very, very versatile way of conducting government. Yeah. Now, the way it was supposed to work mm -hmm. to desegregate the South is instructive here. The problem, I think, with Southern segregation is that, it was a, um, is that it was a product of democracy, that people voted for it and people supported it. So a way had to be found to get around that democracy, to overrule it from Washington. And so Washington got a lot of, a lot of tools. Uh, right in the age of Trump, we hear about how democracy is under threat, but the left doesn't really care that much about democracy. If they have to overthrow democracy to install some civil rights you know, industrial complex, they do that. And the way that uh, segregation was ended was by overcoming democracy, subverting democracy. A lot of behaviors that had been legal um, were declared illegal. The understanding of the First Amendment freedom of assembly to mean freedom of association was withdrawn from our, our usual way of looking at the, the First Amendment. You had a huge investigative apparatus in, in, in Washington, and you had um, the the activation of courtrooms and bureaucracies to do things like actually retry cases that were right. uh, criminal cases to 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 um, to to exert control from Washington over um, elections for the first time since Reconstruction. And there's an answer to this. There's an answer to why this was necessary. People will say, "Well, it was necessary to go around democracy that way because the South's democracy was a flawed democracy." I, I, um, I get that. I get that, the argument, and, and that is yeah. certainly true. But but if I may finish, the yeah. the, the problem was. All democracies are flawed democracies, and, and these tools wound up being able to use. Right, they're a great point. Number one, do not allow a host to derail you. If someone's rude enough to bring you onto their show and then interrupt you in the middle of your point, don't allow it. Speak up. Say, if you'll allow me to finish my point, and if the host won't allow you, then just walk off. And second, 
Christopher Caldwell is absolutely correct. You know, all democracies are flawed democracies because they're the product of flawed human beings. Be used for almost anything, anywhere. Yeah, I would, uh, I, I would take the narrative back to, uh, say, uh, the first decade of the, especially the second decade of the 20th century with uh, oh, Wilsonian progressivism and the idea that uh, the state at the federal level, argument about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, it, it, you're not making the argument that the civil rights part was wrong, but that the federal government uh, basically set the precedent of the fact that it was going to overturn and uh, correct what it saw as wrongs brought about by democracy at the state and local level. Uh, well, and, yes, and, yeah. and here is where I think it's very important. Here's where I really insist that I am presenting a narrative yeah. rather than an argument because I am not, I do not believe that I'm relitigating the arguments of the summer of 1964. Yeah. What I think I'm doing in this book mm -hmm. is talking about how this this act had the seeds of a totally different way of doing politics right. and how it how it developed step by step, you know, first of all, with um, Lyndon Johnson's executive order um, uh, regarding, you know, federal federal contracts, um, you know, the, the the very rapid expansion of the EEOC, the, the, the addition of different, um, you know, of different civil rights things, civil rights in residence, uh, uh, civil rights in residential housing, civil rights uh, through affirmative action in both hiring and, and universities, civil rights in, in busing in school, yeah. most of which things were really explicitly warned against during the discussion in 1964 right, yeah. and held to be absolute impossibilities. Yeah. Um, so it's about an evolution and not about the legislation itself. But, you know, in this conversation, oh, we're doing something up. that is habitual in America. All right. I, I wish we could just listen to Christopher Caldwell without that annoying host just constantly interjecting with his thoughts. So I want to play a little bit of Thomas Friedman. And this is why he kind of embodies why people find the elites so infuriating, particularly in our foreign policy elite in the United States. My name is Thomas Friedman. I'm the foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times. I was actually out in California on a little break and I picked up the phone and there was the news that Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, was marching on Moscow. Following some breaking news out of Russia tonight. Yevgeny Prigozhin says that his forces have left Ukraine. He threatens to move on to Moscow if Russia's top general and defense minister don't meet him. Watching this unfold was really like being thrown back to the 1960s and sitting in the local theater at one of the first James Bond movies. From Russia with love. All these weird looking characters and sinister actors that you found in From Russia with Love and Dr. No. The Americans are fools. I offered my services, they refused. So did the East. Now they can both pay. Putin really reminds you of uh, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, who appeared in six Bond movies, the sinister guy who always had this white cat on his lap as he plotted to undermine Bond and take over the world. As you see, I am about to inaugurate a little war. We shall see a new power dominating the world. And uh, uh, Putin is not that uh, difficult to understand. He's the most effective leader for his nation-state of any major nation-state leader over the past 30 years. Now, he may or may not have blundered with regard to Ukraine, but he's got a pretty impressive track record of getting maximum bang for, for the buck, dealing, you know, with a very weak set of cards and, you know, bringing back Russia from, from you know, the brink of total dissolution. So it doesn't really matter... You know, Putin's ideology, his ideology is that uh, he wants to do the very best that he can for Russia, 
which will frequently mean bad things for other countries because whenever one, one country tries to assert itself or rebu rebuild itself, right, its neighbors, which are used to trying to take advantage of its weakness, are not going to be happy. Progrosian was just this Bond-like character with his own private army talking to the world through Telegram, threatening the Russian leadership and marching his way toward Red Square. From Russia with love had nothing on this uh, this mutiny on the Moscow that was playing out in CNN. As I watched it unfold, though, I was keenly aware this was no movie, and I could not just sit here and pop popcorn and munch away without a, a lot of disquiet. My big concern is that as bad as Vladimir Putin is, and he has so much blood on his hands from as far away as Syria to the back streets of Moscow, don't rule out the possibility that he could have a successor who's worse, and you could get bloody disorder. I was actually... Okay, so he's evaluating Putin according to you know his own moral system, not evaluating Putin in the perspective I think is most important is, you know, has Putin been an effective leader for his country? And I think the obvious answer is yes. For, for 20 years, Putin has been a very effective leader for Russia. The New York Times State Department correspondent back in the late 80s and early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed, I keenly remember how frightened we all were about loose nukes out of Russia. That's really what came to my mind, that there was only one thing worse than Putin staying, and that could be Putin violently being wrenched out, which could open the way, unlikely for someone better, more likely for someone worse. My fear is... Uh, better or worse for whom, right? Uh, Russians primarily care about Russians, just like Americans primarily care uh, about uh, Americans. So Putin's been a pretty doggone effective leader for the Russian people. ...is a kind of fractured Russia where you would get bands of warlords, people from the security services and the army, teaming up with... And it doesn't help that many of our foreign policy elite are talking about breaking up Russia, putting Putin on trial for war crimes. All right, you're backing Russia into a corner, and Russia has nuclear weapons. That's idiocy. ...different oligarchs and biting off chunks of the country. That would just be terrifying because there would be no centralized control anymore over its nuclear weapons or, or of its military. And you would see guns and nuclear weapons and uh, all kinds of drugs and human trafficking just spilling out of this giant Russian landmass. Vladimir Putin has pretty much destroyed, bulldozed every institution in Russia that might have limited his power, but also cushion. Well, Russia is not, you know, some... A Western liberal democracy. They're used to autocratic leaders. Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Oh, blessings, bro. What a day. What a great day for the good home for the uh, for the good guys, bro. Absolutely. What a wonderful day. What a beautiful day in America. It's morning in America, bro. Yeah. You got to think it's sort of like I, I have to think that some of these justices, the right, the conservative justices, just they just saw one too many uh, rainbow flags. Yeah, and they just they just couldn't help themselves. It was time to act. I've been waiting for this for thirty years, Luke. This is this is a great day. Yeah, thank God it's finally here. Yeah, and um, you know it just makes me think about Trump. You know, Trump's Trump's legacy could last for decades. You know, whatever you think about him, his actual on the ground you know effect 
on American culture, uh, it's going to be felt for a long time. And this, this judiciary is, you know, has, what did he put on? Three justices? Yes, he put on three U.S. Supreme Court justices. That's a major legacy. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder, is, is, do you think gay marriage itself could be uh, overturned? I haven't seen any news coverage of that, but I mean, I certainly hope so. I, I, I yeah, mean, I mean, this... I'd love to see the whole civil rights thing overturned, starting with Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, yeah, you know, and I just was thinking, you know, like I'm thinking about my education and just what an unmitigated good, you know, civil rights legislation legislation was presented as, you know, it was it, there was the, just the counter argument was never even engaged with. And it's going to strike a lot of people that way who haven't been tuned into these uh, darker corners of the Internet. They're not going to be able to wrap their heads around the idea that there's another point of view on this. Yeah, it's just like the war in Ukraine or uh, the, the war I against Iraq in 2003. Like, no, no one is held up as a good guy who opposes us arming Ukraine and all the people who are promoting the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003, right? None of them have paid any price for the sheer lunacy that they pushed for. Yeah, and to think it's the same people, you know, I'm thinking of my friends who all kind of support this, uh, you know, liberals. Uh, these were the most vocal uh, opponents of the Iraq war. They were more vocally opposed than I was, who I was just kind of muddled into, you know, neutrality on the whole question. But now... They, they, they seem to have been trained to just do whatever the media tells them to do. Yeah, it's so stunning, the one-sided nature of, of media portrayals. Nobody who accurately described the implications of civil rights legislation has been held up as wise or a good guy. Like, everyone opposed to civil rights legislation is uniformly portrayed as bad, evil people. Yeah, there's a specific word they use uh, when I was growing up. And anybody like that, anybody who's making that case was called scary. Yeah. I don't know if you were, company, if you were yeah. acquainted with that, but that was like the, yeah. the go-to put-down for anybody with an opposing-slash-based point of view. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you didn't want to be thought of as scary if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to become popular or trying to advance your career. You know, It's the <laughs> last adjective you want to apply to your name. Yeah, and I noticed another word that they, they throw out. So I asked uh, economist Russell Roberts if, uh, if celebrating Jewish identity is a wonderful thing and developing a Jewish identity is a wonderful thing and growing Jewishly is a wonderful thing, then why is it an evil thing if white people do the same thing with their white identity? And he said, well, it's because it is ugly, right? White identity is ugly. Jewish identity is beautiful. There's a strong argument. Aesthetics. That's why they hate us, bro. <laughs> well, it's not it's not an even uh, playing field, and, and I don't think that one should walk around mad about it, you know, all day. It just doesn't serve you or anyone else. You know, I don't think one should go into the workplace, you know, just fulminating about civil rights legislation. But you should have some awareness, maybe a, a 3 out of 10 intensity, you know, maybe dialing it up a little at times when you're with a safe in-group. Yeah, but... Or does this apply to women as a group? Are these one of these quote unquote, you know, protected groups that um, 
Yeah, you know, there's in no effect. Yeah, in effect, I mean, like, I mean they rule schools. You know, schools are operated according to female principles of, you know, whatever you know, uh, nurturing and and safety and all that. And workplaces and HR departments are all run according to female whims. Go ahead. Sorry. No, but what I mean, like you know, university admissions admissions are generally fifty fifty, right? I would imagine. I don't know that for a fact, um, but. That's not. Is that a merit-based consideration, or is there? There's, you know, there's just so many slots for men, and then all the men have to complete for the men male slots, and then the women for the female slots. Um, no, no. Women no dominate why. a college. Women dominate at universities. Women dominate at college because they're much more willing to color between the lines, and the whole educational system has become increasingly anti-male, and so men are less and less likely less to to play the game and to even bother to go to college anymore. Yeah, you know, I, I remember all of the uh, all of the kids in my class that got into the elite universities, you know, they were all women, and they, their, their uh, you know, their SRTs, their SATs were far lower than mine. And it just always burned my ass. Uh, that was a fact, and I had to just suck it up, you know. And then the condescension that they, so they, they'd go to their first year of university, then they'd get their you know, politically correct indoctrination, and then the condensation, uh, condescension that they would just just ooze with, you know, when they when they learn this new, you know, woke ideology, and they're just looking down their nose at you because you're just this sort of dirtbag that didn't get it. I don't know. It brings up strong feelings in me, actually, Luke. I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean, I was just walking this evening, and I saw a bunch of women playing with their pet dogs, and I thought that's exactly how many men in the workplace and in educational institutions feel like that women just kind of toy with us like they're pet dogs because at any time they can ruin us, destroy us, get us fired simply by saying, oh, that guy's creepy or he looks at me the wrong way or he you know, made some kind of typical masculine remark. And you know, they, have, they have our balls you know, in, in a vice. In a vice, bro, yeah. Well, I remember when I, uh, I speaking of the internet, I, I've talked about it before, but at this one job, every morning we'd have like a, a brief meeting and we'd give our report, you know, just say what's going on, what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's like a one or two minute like report that we do every single morning. And I was giving my report and this, this woman just interrupted me. And I just stopped cold and I said, why, why are you interrupting me? while I'm giving my report, you know? And just called her out immediately, right, and directly. And she was my boss, by the way, one of my many bosses, right? And you could have heard a pin drop at the table, right? I, I was just so annoyed. I forgot about the whole overall, you know, what this actually meant, you know, for my, my career there. But the fact that I just called her out directly, uh, people were just flabbergasted. They, they couldn't process it. And her face got so red, and then she just put up her middle finger Rushed it in my face and just stormed out. Right? And there was no consequence. There was no consequence for her whatsoever, right? If I yeah. had you know, roles were reversed yeah. and I had done that, there yeah. would have been hell to pay, right? And you know, anyway, I just all this woke stuff. It's just been. I, it just you know. I, I just I, I just I think we need another Trump moment. We need another two hundred six. If this is gonna be a tennis match, you know, it's time for our team to, to to hit a few balls. You know what I mean? 
Oh, yeah. But, I mean, we can have our own mini Trump moments. Like, in the office, you can close the door when you're just with other blokes and you can yeah. blow some steam. You know, we can we can create our own mini Trump moments with our, with our mates. Like, we have to have male-only spaces where we can talk freely. Yes, yes. You know, I just came of age just that those had been, you know, done away with. But I, I it was the... Um, what was it? The Elks Club and the uh, Odd Fellows, all these sort of uh, fraternal organizations that used to exist. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were they were a strong feature of American social life, uh, and they of course had to admit women. I think. Yeah, which then destroyed them because the you know the reason that men would go to them is to be with other men. Like generally right. speaking, it's not in men's interest to generally speaking socialize with women unless they're trying to sleep with them. Right. And they don't want—they don't want women in those space. They don't want their family broken up, right? right? They don't want women, you know, flirting with other men. And and it, it, I don't know, you know, it, it's all so obvious, Luke. But uh, hold on, I'm in a little tricky driving moment here. Okay, uh, so. okay, okay. All right, all right, I got through it. I got through it. Go um, ahead, man. So uh, the other thing, all right. So that's the affirmative action. So what about this Russian thing? Did you ever actually? Um, give a debrief on like what actually happened because that was the most strangest 24 hours in international news history that i've ever seen it was and no i'm just listening to different perspectives honestly i don't know that much about russian politics (laughs) yeah yeah well funny thing enough that day so this sort of had the news broke friday night following saturday i run into my neighbor who's ukrainian and i ask him what his opinion was and he was adamant in his view that uh, this was a setup, that Russian and what's it, Proshkin, Perushki? Yeah, Perushkin. Uh, this was all a chess move. This was all a grand design between them, if and that they're still buddy-buddy, and that they had, you know, uh, this was part of the plan, as it were. And he's Ukrainian. He's not Russian. Anyway. Yeah. I just don't know who to trust because I've heard so many varying, disparate uh, interpretations of this, and it just has to be the strangest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I can't imagine. One thing I think is indisputable, that this is not good for Russia. And then second, with almost a contrary point, that, yeah, yeah Putin is vulnerable, but so, so is the United States. Like, uh, Joe Biden could drop dead at any minute. Um, you know, everybody's vulnerable. So Putin, yeah, he particularly looks vulnerable right right now, but he could very well last another 10, 15 years in power. That I, I would say there's probably a you know, 30, 40% chance. Well, you saw that meme I, I sent you where the net result of it is this Wagner group is now incredibly close to Kiev. Kiev, right? Mm-hmm. Kiev. Yeah. And that sort of does underscore... It does lend some support to this theory that it was actually a plan between the two. Bottom line is, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody knows, but I, I don't. I think it's just so premature to talk about the election because I think there's going to be many twists and turns between here and the election. Um, like a year from now, what we're talking about is going to be a faint, distant memory, and I, I just don't know what we're going to be talking about twelve months from now. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Well. Just a quick one, man. 
Thanks, man. All right. Shalom. Okay. Shalom. Right, Take bye. care. Okay. Bye. A little bit more here from. We have this phrase the Civil Rights Movement. We have uh, the Civil Rights Act. Um, 66 or 67, I believe, um, was to convey to our, our black citizens their full rights as, as, as citizens. Right. Um, but it, it became, you're right, it rapidly became very confusing because the pillar on which the civil rights regime, if we can call yeah. it, is constructed is the 14th Amendment. The basis of the 14th Amendment is equal citizenship. And yet so much in the, let's say, legal structure that arose out of the Civil Rights yeah. Act is about drawing distinctions between citizens, you know, based on race. And so it's a very confusing matter. Legal. Yeah, I, what, I, um, what I want to help people to understand is that when we talk about civil rights, the civil rights movement was explicitly about. And, 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 and again, this is, this is why I describe the book as a narrative. It's, it's not that we've just been arguing about the same law at the, you know, for the last 55 years. It's that the law created an entire new way of doing politics. That's why we describe it as a, as a second constitution, which is often at, it, it turns out at, at loggerheads with the first. Yeah, and uh, th- this idea of civil rights, I just want to help to, to kind of play this out. Yes, it's, it, it's very interesting. So in the beginning, um, you had a, a, a movement um, that was based on writing the United States' great historic wrong. And um, it, had, it was given a lot of passion by that, but it was also given a lot of specificity by that. I think that Americans thought that it was, it was required by history, but it was also limited by history. And as long as we were talking about you know, making amends for historical mis- misdeeds, you know, there's a lot for Americans to argue about and disagree on. But I think that... Ah, forgot. I want to go back to finishing this uh, somewhat infuriating Thomas Friedman column here on Putin. The transition. The Soviet Union had a lot of institutions. It had a Politburo. It had Soviets. It had councils. It had actually an order of succession. Putin has none of that. And that means when he goes, the most likely outcome is not a natural successor, Mr. or Mrs. Nice person. It's likely disorder. Yeah, Putin took Russia when it was at its lowest, and he restored it to being one of the top three great powers. Right. He's done a heck of a job for Russia. The big question is, what are the implications for the war in Ukraine? And it's just too early to tell. Everyone is now watching two things. What has been the effectiveness of the surge by the Ukrainian army, the so-called spring offensive? And while they have taken some 50 square miles of territory, they haven't exactly busted through Russian lines. And of course, what they're also watching for is what will be the solidity of those Russian lines if the Wagner group led by Progrosian is not there. So too early to tell, but it's going to... So I don't know much about Russian military, but it does seem pretty obvious that uh, the Wagner group is the most effective, most badass part of the Russian military. It'll be a, a very interesting few weeks to watch what flows. When this first broke, there were two things that came to my mind, 11 time zones and a big lie. When the leader of a country that spans 11 time zones starts a war with his neighbor on the basis of a huge lie. Okay, that's nonsense. All right. How Putin and Russia have operated with Ukraine is no different than how the United States has consistently operated with the rest of the Americas. All right. The Monroe Doctrine says the United States abrogates to itself the right to determine the limits of your foreign policy choices if you're in the Americas. All right. Uh, the United States of America will not put out with any peer competitors 
in its own region. The United States wants to absolutely dominate the Americas, just as Russia and just as China, for normal, natural, you know, healthy nationalistic reasons, want to absolutely dominate their backyards. Nothing good is going to come from this. It's a big, bad business. Russia is pursuing its self-interest, right? China is pursuing its self-interest by, you know, looking at taking over Taiwan. The possibility of a happy ending is very, very small. Yeah, because the United States got involved military to make this a de facto NATO versus Russia war, which is completely unnecessary. Russia is going to get what it wanted. Right? Russia will take exactly what it wanted, even if the United States had never sent any arms to Ukraine. Right? If the United States had never sent any arms to Ukraine, Russia would never have felt the need to invade. But now that they've invaded, Russia is going to take those parts of Ukraine that are predominantly Russian-speaking. And they are going to extend the, the defenses you know, of their border. I hope Ukraine can survive the Russian onslaught. I hope the Russian people can survive it and find their way to a new leader. But I've got a pit in my stomach. While I am perfectly... He's better than you. He's got a pit in his stomach because he's so worried about what happens. All right, the, the odds are 99.9% that whatever happens now between Russia and Ukraine is not going to affect the ordinary American. So there's no need to have a pit in your stomach unless you want to show off how you know, morally far-sighted and morally sensitive you are. Capable of finding some humor in the crazy madcap characters. In okay. Thanks, Tom Friedman. It, all Americans understood that. That made a lot of intuitive sense to Americans, whether they liked the Civil Rights Act or not. Right. When you started... but but you very quickly moved on from there. And in fact, by the time you get to 1978, yeah. the Supreme Court actually repudiates the idea that this is uh, any kind of restitution or, um, uh, or um, uh, 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 making of amends um, uh, historically. It's about just this ethic of, of diversity. Yeah, and uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, like the rise of, of feminism, the, the, um, you know, the, the Vietnam War, and certainly the, the sort of the class consequences of the way uh, of the way um, uh, people were sent to war and and, um, and of the way people felt about the war right. and that sort of thing. Well, you know, morally speaking. Uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated thing. I think that more Republicans voted for civil rights proportionately than yes. Democrats. But, the, but the, the party balance in both houses was so lopsided that any achievement, that anything that made it through Congress was going to, have, you know, pass with predominantly Democratic votes. Yeah, no, yes, but, uh, but getting constitutional order. But yeah, this is a this is a complicated thing. It's not. I don't think it's just a different way of understanding our constitution. I think that it's an alternative way of organizing a a political hmm. society, and uh, whether by custom um, or uh, through just deference to the Supreme Court or, or or whatever, this new constitution can overrule the old constitution. Um, you know, nobody voted for gay marriage, but right. we have gay marriage. Okay, so we live under this new constitution. It, our old constitution does not have full effect now. It is very curious when you consider – one of the things I look at in the book – I spent a lot of time on gay marriage in the book. Mm -hmm. One of the very curious things about gay marriage is that a lot of Republicans – I was in Washington in the 1990s. A lot of Republicans who were tempted to say, well, look at what they're doing in Hawaii. They're talking about marrying – you know, they're talking about men marrying men. We should, we should really pin that on the Democratic Party. And a lot of the, the discussion inside the Republican Party was, no, that's too ridiculous. It'll look like we're just like piling on and we're being like mm -hmm. lunatics. And yet – and, you know, 10 years after that, you had it in Massachusetts, and 10 years after that, you had it nationwide. That seemed to be the end. What could you do after that? But now we have transgender. Who knows? Maybe it will be another group. Maybe it will be, you know, um, 
I, I believe there's a need for a crusade. I think that, that people feel the need for a crusade. But I don't, I'm not so sure it will be a small minority, you know? It might be possible to apply this to apply this model of government to society as a whole, you know, to, to sort of begin to, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, let, let me just say, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't predict the future. Can't well, I'm, I'm not really asking you that he has used is, is what Justice Scalia uh, paragraph ever. Individuals wish. And that's a, you might call it an Achilles heel of, of, of American society. And, and it's one that has been present, present in American society for a very long time. And I, I think that it's a, you know, another example of it is just the litigation that we have in our society. Uh, you know, in terms of our institutions, um, we are free. But we are, any American citizen can be subject to harassment in a courtroom, um, you know, by a lawsuit. And it tends to happen more and more. So this is a very, this doesn't exist in Europe. It's a very American thing to believe that society must accommodate itself to, to your needs. And, and to every need. And, and even, you know, the definition of existence, uh, it reminds me of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that Daniel Patrick Moynihan was the first to say this. He tended to say minority of any kind, not just you know, racial, but 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 religious or or um, uh, or um, uh, 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 of ethnic origin or or gender or whatever, who can show himself put upon. Let's say. Um, okay, I wonder what uh, Greg Gutfeld has to say. <laughs> True, it's been a while. That race-based affirmative action programs are unconstitutional. It's been around for 45 years, and I guess one of the justices finally read the Constitution for the first time yesterday, and was like, "What?" <laughs> True, it's been a while since the Supreme Court treated the Constitution as anything but a paper towel for when Biden spills his insure. And the reason for the change is also the reason for tonight's monologue. It's been over 150 years since America banned slavery. But here's an interesting fact that folks at Reuters just dug up. I love Reuters. A lot of powerful people in the U.S., including our living presidents, Supreme Court justices, governors, and legislators, descended from slave owners. That includes Republicans, Mitch McConnell. I'd say he took one on the chin, but we all know that's not possible. <laughs> but also Lindsey Graham, James Lankford, and Tom Cotton. Mm, Cotton, his name sort of gave that away. <laughs> that's a, if he ever ran for president, he yeah. should not use the, the slogan, pick Cotton. Yeah. <laughs> Not gonna, not gonna work in the cities. <laughs> I'm I would, sorry. I would not advise that either. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> and if those old white men didn't surprise you, how about Dems, Tammy Duckworth, Jean Shaheen, Maggie Hassan, and Liz Warren? Right. That's got to be tough for those women of color, right? Liz Warren must be asking, how, how. <laughs> How is this possible? <laughs> but the fun part, every living president is a descendant of slave owners. Well, except one. And can you guess which president is free of that ancestral shame? No, not that one. His ancestors owned slaves, and boy, did reparations just get awkward. And no, definitely not this one. His ancestors owned slaves, too. Though, to be fair, Joe was just a child at the time. <laughs> so who's the exception? Okay, that's going to do it. Take care. Bye-bye.